And welcome to the Resilience and Opportunity Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lantman, recording here in sunny Orlando, Florida, the 18th of April, 2020. All right, so you may have noticed there's a little bit of delay of game between episode 5 in June and episode 6. I'd like to squarely blame my wife and our newborn son for that delay. Uh, I had all intentions of pushing through maternity leave, producing podcasts all along, but the cadence of diapers, early morning feedings, travel, and the hurricane on top of it all uh, really changed my plans. So the good news is that thanks to coronavirus and its related social distancing, I have a lot more time for writing and reading reflection so look for more podcasts i don't have a timeline yet for episode seven but if you're signed up on the website resilop.com r-e-s-i-l-o-p-p you'll be the first to know so a lot of the concepts i want to put forth require me to to first understand them myself and then find a way to translate that to my audience. And the slowest and most painful way, yet most effective way to do that, in my case, is actually to to put it to word. So you'll find my blog post to be longer than industry standard. But the good news is I'm going to turn around and translate those same ideas from the blog to this podcast. And certainly you could come out okay just simply by listening to the podcast. But I really would encourage folks to to do both. There's invariably going to be material covered in the blog that won't make it onto the podcast. And similarly, uh, just from reflecting on what I wrote last week, there will be ideas, insights, and side stories that only show up here on episode 6. All right, so with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into this podcast, Climate Politics 2020, The Honest Strategy. Here we go. So this podcast really owes its genesis to this summer's Hurricane Dorian. As you may remember, the storm was projected to head right over the top of Orlando at one point. So especially with a new guy on the ground, we weren't going to risk storm damage, power outage, and all the rest of it. So we loaded up the car and headed north. It turned out to be a pretty great little impromptu vacation. It's always great to get out of Florida in the summertime, enjoy a little cooler weather. Uh, We went apple picking, trying to pretend it was fall already. So after a few days passed, it became clear that Hurricane Dorian had changed his mind and decided to head up the Carolinas versus through Orlando. So we loaded up the crew and uh, pointed our car south, make the quick thousand plus mile trip back home via the Shenandoahs down through to Asheville, North Carolina and on to Atlanta. Did I mention that on this entire trip we were accompanied by five chickens? Now, this little detail bears no relevance to the overall story here, 
But as I'm sitting here trying to record this, I can't help but be reminded of the fact that every time I looked in the back of the car, there was five now adolescent chickens staring back at me. All I can say about this particular aspect of this trip is those chickens better turn out some serious eggs. So now we're on to the last day of our epic road trip. We left Asheville, North Carolina at about 4 a.m., made our way around Atlanta, avoiding the traffic the best we could, and stopped for breakfast at the vaunted Cracker Barrel restaurant. I was looking forward to having a very nice, quiet, and peaceful breakfast, but the road-weary four-year-old did not see it that way, so it was uh, anything but. The, the good news is that once I got in the car, it was time to get into the CNN Climate Change Town Hall. For those of you who don't know, the town hall was six, seven hours of every candidate talking about climate change on an individual basis. There must be a dozen or so of us Americans that listen to every candidate's segment and even fewer of us that listen to several of the candidate segments more than once. My first reaction to listening to all the candidates talk about climate change on the, you know, again, six, seven hour town hall was the simple fact that it was actually happening. Rewind the tape back to 2016, and for those of us who were paying attention, the number of times climate change was raised as an issue could best be described as a rounding error. Now, even as I sit here recording this podcast episode, I still don't understand why a topic, which frankly should have been front and center in our public discourse for the last 30 plus years, as author Nathaniel Rich points out in his book, Losing Earth, A Recent History, has become a serious front page and kitchen table topic in just the last couple of years. It's great to see that MIT economist Dr. Dornbush's famous axiom, things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen faster than you thought they could, is alive and well. My strategy in talking about the town hall and climate change and politics really isn't about getting into what any one particular candidate says. It's more about talking in general terms about where the public discourse is at this time. Like Nathaniel Rich pointed out in his book, again, Losing Earth, A Recent History, it's pretty clear that our greatest opportunity to address climate change and to really prevent its emergence was lost some 20 years ago. Well, it's great that Dr. Dornbush's axiom now applies to the world of climate change. Unfortunately, it's no longer sufficient for us to consider this topic solely in terms of such metrics as carbon footprints and renewable energy standards. Today's climate reality is such that we have to start developing adaptation and even triage solutions for many aspects of our everyday lives. The 2020 candidates talked about today's climate change challenge almost exclusively in hopeful and even aspirational terms. They would evoke the memory 
of national unifying events like putting a man on the moon, when talking about making major investments in renewable energy, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, and holding global climate warming to 2 degrees Celsius. No candidate talked about how increasingly dangerous and unpredictable storms will threaten the very insurance rates and municipal bond ratings communities depend on for their very existence. I was listening to this town hall just a day after Hurricane Dorian had leveled parts of the Bahamas. My family and I had earlier that summer toured the devastated community of Mexico Beach, Florida, which was all but leveled by 2018's Hurricane Michael. I soon became convinced somewhere between Gainesville and Ocala while traveling south on I-75 with my five chickens in tow that today's political discourse surrounding climate change does not reflect today's realities any more than the new coke and big hair that reigned supreme when Jim Hansen first testified to Congress about the threat climate change poses to our society 30 years ago. I mentioned at the top of this podcast that there's going to be times when this podcast and its associated blog post are going to diverge and some material will be covered in one place but not the other. So as I spent the last week putting this podcast together, I realized a lot of the points that I'm bringing up are readily available in the world of climate change discussion and debate. I'm not exactly breaking new ground when I point out that the best time to address climate change was 30 years ago when Jim Henson and others first brought this emerging threat to our nation's attention. What I do believe sets me apart from others that consider this topic is my unique background that informs how I consider these issues and what it is that motivates me to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Monday to record a podcast. I would argue that it's safe to say that most people that would be dedicated enough to the topic of climate change to record a podcast at 3 o'clock in the morning on Monday would do so in order to protect our collective health, happiness, and well-being, and that of future generations. I, by contrast, record a podcast about climate change at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Monday because I find the severity that defines this threat to be fascinating. The best way for me to explain what I mean by fascinating is to describe a week-long event I attended some time ago. If my description comes across as a little bit vague and unspecific, that's by design. I spent the week sitting next to and listening to presentations from people whose job it is to research, understand, and develop countermeasures to the greatest threats that face our country and global community. It's the kind of gathering in which the doctor sitting next to you at lunch describes what it's like to handle Ebola, and the afternoon speaker is another PhD who has dedicated 30 years to understanding the science and security implications of nuclear weapons and how to counter the threat their proliferation presents. These are the very people who we talk to at soccer practice or walk past in the grocery store who've chosen to dedicate their considerable skills and talents to keeping us safe from threats that are larger and farther reaching than we appreciate. It goes without saying that there was a lot of smart and dedicated folks in attendance at this gathering whose skills, talents, and education would afford them much more lucrative opportunities than government service can offer. 
Unfortunately for their 401k, their desire to understand and contribute to addressing the world's greatest threats was too great. My reasons for establishing resilience and opportunity aren't that different from the reasons why women and men choose to dedicate their professional lives to understanding and countering the greatest threats facing our country. I'm drawn first and foremost to the intellectual task of studying and understanding climate change's varied and far-reaching problem set, but from more of an economic standpoint. For example, I work to understand the primary, secondary, and tertiary impacts California's increasingly severe fire problem will have on the state's agencies, communities, and individuals. I then work to understand how those impacts translate into market disruptions and investment opportunities. I consider climate change impacts the same way my PhD lunchmate considers her work encountering the Ebola threat. I place greater emphasis on this threat's most likely strength and course rather than favoring its most optimistic projected outcomes. The doctor wouldn't design America's response to an Ebola outbreak around that threat's most optimistic course and strength projections. Rather, she would start with the most likely projections and designs a response strategy that meets that threat as well as a margin of safety. Debates about how to best address climate change by contrast have come to be defined by increasingly optimistic and unrealistic projections. We still talk about limiting global temperature rise to 2 degrees even though the likelihood of meeting that goal is becoming increasingly faint. We talk about climate change impacts in terms of the year 2100, despite the fact that we're already seeing significant climate change impacts today. Year 2100 climate projections, which are the industry standard for talking about climate change impacts, unfortunately also convey to today's generations the idea that this is a problem that will face those who come after us. The reality is that our world will look very different in the same time it takes to pay off a 30-year mortgage. Now, it would be reasonable to conclude that my underlying purpose in putting forward such dire predictions is to rally people to action, but that estimation would be incorrect. Whether someone believes in climate change, for example, has no bearing on my work in this emerging field, so I make no effort to convince anyone otherwise. The value I bring to an organization with regard to this topic is wholly dependent on clear-eyed threat assessments. So climate change's most likely strength and course is at the heart of every recommendation I make. New York Magazine's columnist and editor David Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth, served to really synthesize the idea that we as a society continue to underestimate the true cost and threat climate change poses to our near and long-term health and welfare. His book starts with the line, It is worse, much worse than you think. Not to be sensationalist, but to really grab his reader's attention and introduce to them the idea that everything they thought they already understood about climate change does not capture the threat's true scale and breadth. David makes the case that such endgame events that have fixed our imagination for years, like sea level rise enveloping Miami Beach, will be well preceded elsewhere by violent events like heat waves, flooding, 
crop failure, and even forest fires. He also made the case that climate change's impacts will be evident and severe well before the often referenced by year 2100 marker. David's The Uninhabitable Earth underscored for me the idea that we really are three decades too late to address climate change's worst impacts. The world will suffer substantial damages that can't be reversed on a timeline relevant to humankind, really regardless of the steps taken today. Therefore, today's political climate crisis discussion has to go beyond how to prevent the climate crisis to how our people, communities, infrastructure, government, and security will adapt. Today's politicians will be called upon to make tough choices as we begin to lose some fights against climate change's worst impacts. Elizabeth Rush writes in her excellent book, Rising Dispatches from a New American Shore, about just such difficult choices. She tells a story of how the sea has all but claimed the once vibrant Louisiana coastal community of Isle de Jean Charles. A once vibrant and sizable village, Isle de Jean Charles, has lost much of its land mass and most of its residents because protecting it from coastal erosion with extreme engineering solutions would be cost prohibitive, if not impossible. Unfortunately, Isle Jean Charles' story is one that will increasingly play out across the country from Alaska fishing villages to flood-prone Midwestern communities and forced fire vulnerable Western towns. You're listening to Climate Politics 2020, The Honest Strategy. I'm your host, Mark Lantman. No one, especially political campaigns, want to talk about the grave challenges we face as temperatures rise, tipping points are reached, and natural resources are diminished. Our leaders avoid a lot of hard truths by design when they evoke the well-traveled sentiment of, elect me and I'll make everything better. Conversely, we as the electorate incentivize our politicians to offer us hope, inspiration, and assurances that require minimal personal contribution or sacrifice. Unfortunately, we are programmed to reward the political leaders who put forward these pain-free and overly simplistic, straightforward solutions. American politics offer no better example of a significant challenge being met with an inspiring and aspirational message than President Kennedy's moonshot national mobilization effort. We choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. Those are President Kennedy's now famous words from his 1962 Rice University speech that inspired a nation. President Kennedy's moonshot was a monumental achievement, but one that only asked a great deal of a few dedicated American scientists, engineers, and explorers. Everyday Americans were not required to contribute to this national effort, 
and faced no personal risk if the landing failed. Today's climate crisis, by contrast, will ask a great deal of individual Americans and comparatively little of our government. The cost of not preparing for and addressing climate change will, unlike ambitious space exploration, impart enormous hardship on our individual lives. America's farmers will have to adapt to new climatic conditions, which will encompass everything from higher average daily temperatures and uncertain rain patterns to what crops farmers can plant and what new insects will threaten their yield. Coastal communities will increasingly have as much to fear from the likes of their insurers and municipal bond raiders as the stronger and more frequent storms themselves. The Pentagon is already preparing to face the previously inconceivable geopolitical contest of competing for Arctic sea lane supremacy and mineral extraction rights as sea ice and glaciers continue to recede. The job of preparing for climate change will be heartbreaking and unheroic to be sure. There will be no climate equivalents to millions of people watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepping out onto the moon and planting the American flag. There will be no seminal moment in which the struggle ends and victory is claimed. The severity and short time frame in which everyday Americans will feel climate change impacts deserve the level of frankness nations and their people reserve for only their greatest threats. Today's candidates should adopt a climate crisis policy position and messaging strategy that levels with Americans about the severity of the threats we face. This strategy will serve to reframe the climate crisis as a more personal and immediate threat in a way that drives home what's at stake. This message should be delivered in a straightforward and matter-of-fact fashion rather than exploited as an opportunity to stoke fears and emotions. Voters will respect leaders who level with them directly and clearly about the risk and disruptions that await where they live and how they live. Voters are already starting to look to their government for leadership as our need to prepare and adapt to emerging climate impacts becomes ever clearer. The electorate is beginning to reward politicians who champion the research, investment, and education necessary to help their communities adapt to new circumstances. North Carolinians, for example, have begun demanding that coal ash impoundments be removed so that they no longer pollute their communities' drinking water and soil, especially given the state's increasingly intense and frequent storms. Universities are recognizing that preparing students for tomorrow's climate realities require that they suffuse this emerging truth throughout their institutional and academic DNAs. The Hard Truth Political Strategy 
My favorite scene in HBO's miniseries Chernobyl is perhaps unique from what most people found memorable about that and just incredible story. It starts out at 18 minutes and 15 seconds in episode 3 with a bunch of rough looking miners covered head to toe in black coal dust sitting around listening to their crew chief tell a joke. I instantly recognized this scene from my own life's travels. These men were Soviet era coal miners, but they could have just easily been the loggers I knew growing up in Washington State or any one of the numerous military units I observed or served alongside in Iraq and Afghanistan. I have no doubt these men share a commonality with American fishermen operating in some of the world's harshest seas and roughnecks operating dangerous drilling equipment in remote and inhospitable environments. These are all examples of the same kind of men and women who take pride in doing hard, dangerous, and thankless work for much less pay and recognition than their risk and sacrifices should merit. One trait all these men and women share from Pacific Northwest forests and America's battlefields to Soviet-era coal mines is that they are inherently defiant and expect to be given a wide berth by those who are either unable or are unwilling to share their burden. Their faces do not betray their desire to be left alone by others who cannot or don't care to do their job. There's no better depiction of a social dynamic that's defined by defiance and deference than when the miners hear vehicles approach and are led outside by their crew chief, Andre Glukov. The men emerge from their dark, smoke-filled break room to be greeted by the Soviet Minister of Coal, who is flanked by two soldiers holding AK-47s. The minister assertively, yet cautiously, demands that all 100 miners gather their equipment and get on the bus. Andre pushes back. Do you? To where? The minister quickly rebuffs the crew chief's insubordination by telling him that such information is classified. Andre responded to the minister's dodge by inviting the soldiers to open fire. He pointed out that the guards did not have enough bullets for all the miners, so those miners left standing would beat the living piss out of each of you. One of the soldiers shouted back, You can't talk to us like that. And Andre responded, Shut up. This is Tula. This is our mine. We don't leave unless we know why. I should mention here that this kind of men and women possess a healthy dose of fatalism and general apathy toward personal injury and death. Those who make their living doing the kind of work that taunts death every day have long since made peace with their mortality. The minister quickly defuses the situation by telling the miners that they are going to Chernobyl because the reactor's fuel was threatening to poison groundwater from Kiev to the Black Sea. With that, Andre quietly leads his crew onto the buses to go do another job that others are, again, unable or are unwilling to do. You're listening to the Resilience and Opportunity Podcast, 
Episode 6, Climate Politics 2020, The Honest Strategy, with me, your host, Mark Lantman. Americans writ large have a lot in common with those Soviet-era coal miners. We want to know the unadorned truth about the grave impacts climate change will have on our lives, landscape, and way of life. We then want to be left alone to do the work necessary to confront this emerging new reality. Americans will respect and support political leaders who have the strength to say that everything is not going to be okay. But I'm here, ready to lead in these uncertain times. To borrow Andre's language, this is America. We don't get on the bus unless we know where we're going. These men work in the dark. They see everything. My favorite Chernobyl scene comes 26 minutes into episode 3. Boris, who's the Communist Party leader charged with managing the Chernobyl response, notices that Professor Legasov is leaning against a wall, clearly nervous about something. Boris asks Professor Legasov, What? Professor Lagoff says, I'm not good at this, Boris. The lying. Boris asks, Have you ever spent time with the miners? No, comes the response. My advice is to tell the truth. These men work in the dark. They see everything. Professor Lagasov tells the coal miners crew chief, Andre, that they will need to dig a deep mine below the reactor at considerable personal risk. Boris then suggests that they start in the morning, but the crew chief says, no, we start now. I don't want my men here one more second than they need to be. Lastly, once the crew chief leaves the office, Professor Legasov turns to Boris and asks, are they all like this? Boris replies, they are all like that. The back and forth between Boris and Professor Legasov is very illustrative of the tact that our political leaders should take regarding climate change. Americans have enough of the crew chief's hard-earned swagger to accept the world as it will be rather than as we wish it to remain. The message leaders need to share with Americans will be hard to deliver and even harder to hear. There will undoubtedly be significant blowback and propagated doubt. Still, unfortunately, the painful truths that await our communities and families will make their presence known regardless if we are ready to face our new normal. Perhaps Chernobyl's most emblematic scene came 38 minutes and 30 seconds into episode 3. Andre, the crew chief, who happened to be standing naked in front of Boris, asked, When this is over, will they, meaning his men, be looked after? Boris answered soberly, I don't know. This simple exchange between Andre and Boris captures perfectly the simple truth that, no, everything is not going to be okay. America will someday be compelled to go all in on climate change adaptation, 
And yet, there should be no expectation that we, our country, or the global community at large will come out whole on the other side. Sometimes sacrifice is just that. All right, that all but wraps up episode six. Uh, before we go, I just wanted to provide this is something I do in my my blog. I leave little notes at the end to kind of give you a, an inside look of how I consider the topic and any any amplifying information I think was useful for the for the reader. So here we go. Um, I don't intentionally approach climate change from a doom and gloom angle in order to evoke any type of visceral response. That's just not my style. Uh, if you want to blame anything, you'd probably be in my military background. I assess threats based on their current parameters and trajectory rather than relying on blue sky thinking. The real value I offer the clients I work with is my ability and more importantly, my willingness to consider climate and its impacts as they are rather than as we wish they would be. Uh, I don't count on dramatic global efforts or new wonder technologies to reverse global trends. I look at what the information in front of me and say, hey, this is the threat that we're facing. What is the future in that world look like? And what are the opportunities? What are the risks? And how do we build resilience and pursue those opportunities going forward? So the most significant influence on this particular podcast episode and its original blog post origin is, again, David Wallace-Wells' book, The Unhabitable Earth. I highly recommend folks that are interested in this topic read it. Uh, again, what it, Dave has been able to do is take the scientific research and really distill it down he took off the rose-colored glasses and gave all of us a good look at the threats facing humankind in the stark and matter-of-fact terms. I'm actually particularly interested in the human elements of how we respond to our changing world. If anything, I am concerned that we are underestimating the impacts that food shortages, migration... Uh, political eruptions, geopolitical contests will have in the coming years. So I try to factor that in uh, very heavily when, when working with clients. All right, so that wraps up Episode 6, Climate Politics 2020, The Honest Strategy. And again, it's based on my October 12, 2019 blog post by the same name, I do encourage you to go back and read that blog post for a slightly different perspective. Content covered there wasn't in the podcast and vice versa, so it's worth a quick read. Please do leave comments, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, really, for all the work that goes in these podcasts, my reward is hearing from people, learning from your perspectives, your experiences, what you're seeing out there in your part of the world. So that kind of feedback is really what I thrive on. Also, I've learned my lesson about predicting when my next podcast episode will be available. Uh, the best thing to do is to subscribe on the website, www 
resil r-e-s-i-l op o-p-p dot com that stands for resilience and opportunity if you subscribe there you'll see the next podcast when it comes up i do want to produce these quicker and faster the good news is i already have a great topic for episode seven and i'm starting to work on that already again you'll see a blog post on that first before we get into actually produce the podcast Please also like, subscribe, and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Links to all those can be found on my website, again, resilop.com. Lastly, thank you to all the healthcare workers, public safety officers and officials, as well as all the farmers and store workers who are taking care of us and keeping the lights on. We really appreciate it. Uh, We are definitely in tough and difficult times right now, but this too shall pass. Done right, we can come out of this trying and difficult times a little stronger with greater resilience and with an eye to those opportunities that lie ahead. I'm your host, Mark Lampman. Thank you again for all your time and taking this journey with me. All the best until next time.